In 2008, the world economy was close to a complete collapse. A mortgage lending crisis in the U.S. rapidly spread to other sectors and foreign markets and threatened to repeat the devastation of the Great Depression of the 1930s. The economy needed rescuing. It needed a hero. And it got one. A dead economist named John Maynard Keynes. John Keynes was born in 1883 in Cambridge, England. He lived through the Great Depression and World Wars I and II, and he focused on designing ways to prevent future economic catastrophes. His ideas radically changed existing economic theories and empowered governments to intervene during moments of crisis. President Barack Obama and other world leaders drew upon Keynes's ideas when they were faced with the financial crash in 2008. They largely did save the global economy from catastrophe, and it was thanks to Keynes. Keynes believed that people had the power to affect the economy, and that by affecting the economy, we could create a more just and equitable world. Keynes was always looking for ways to improve things. But he was looking for ways to improve things in part so as to conserve them. His whole life, in a sense, stood for the power of an engaged intellectual. Welcome to Writ Large, a podcast about books that change the world. I'm Zachary Davis. In each episode, I talk to one of the world's leading scholars about how one book changed the course of history. Today, I'm talking with Larry Summers, a professor of economics and a former president of Harvard and a former director of the National Economic Council in the Obama administration. I spoke with Professor Summers about John Maynard Keynes' The General Theory of Employment, Interest, and Money. Keynes' general theory was published in England in 1936, at the tail end of the Great Depression. Keynes' text challenged earlier beliefs about supply and demand and the value of governmental intervention. So it seems to me like part of what Keynes was doing with this work is demystifying the economy. What I understand is that previously with classical economics, a lot of the economists and intellectuals said, well, you know, there's really nothing humans can do to impact the economy. We just have to wait for it to naturally unfold, that there was a naturalness to it. What was he saying differently? Keynes was a resounding anti-fatalist. He didn't believe that things had to be a certain way. He believed that the world was there and the world could be changed by decisions that people made and that the decisions people made were a product of their thoughts, a product of their theories. He also rejected the idea, which often went with fatalism, that whatever happened automatically was for the best. That if people were unemployed, well, that was what was necessary to reallocate resources from one place to another place where they would be better used. It was a descendant of the idea that existed among the early economists that if there was a famine, that was unfortunate, but it was necessary to contain population growth and avoid a larger famine later. Classical economic theories understood the economy to be a naturally equilibrating system. Classical economists believed that supply and demand and prices were kind of like a system with a thermostat. If you think about a thermostat, when the room gets too warm, the air conditioner goes on and the temperature gets cooler. When the room gets too cool, the heat goes on and the temperature gets warmer. And so it's always pushed 
back towards equilibrium. In economic terms, this was the idea that production is a source of demand. That in order to buy something, a person has to produce a product that they can sell. According to this theory, boosting production will boost the economy overall. Keynes saw that that was not the way actual economies operated. He saw that there were financial panics. He saw that there were periods, often periods that lasted for a long time, of high unemployment. And he tried to think about why that was and then to use that understanding to cause it to happen much less than it otherwise could. So at a high level then, what was his argument about how to actually address this supply and demand question? His argument was that you couldn't rely on interest rates to adjust to assure enough investment because the interest rate had many other roles in the economy. The interest rate helped to balance resources between safe assets, those that were immediately spendable, and risky assets, like a house, which is valuable, but which you can't immediately cash in on. And so he saw the interest rate as flawed, as an instrument for balancing purchasing power, and therefore something else had to happen. Keynes argued that the government could directly influence the level of demand by engaging in public investment programs or giving money to the people who were the most likely to spend it, rather than save or invest it. He wanted to preserve people's confidence in business, especially during economic downturns like the Great Depression. And so he felt that it was the government's responsibility to boost spending through direct action. And notice that by thinking about it in that way, Keynes was, at one level, making a progressive and almost radical argument. But at another level, he was providing an alternative that was fundamentally within the existing system through which demand could be stabilized at a moment when many were coming to doubt the functionality, and the efficacy of that system. Keynes was making a pointed argument about how to have a functioning economy, but he was making a broader argument as well. At one point, he refers to the difficulties of the British economy in the early 1930s as a magneto problem. Magneto was British vocabulary at that time for what today we would call the spark plug of a car. And Keynes's point was that if the spark plug doesn't work, the whole car doesn't go at all. But it doesn't mean that the whole car is broken and that the whole car has to be fixed. It means you have to understand and identify the problem, and then you can solve it. That was how Keynes saw economic problems. If one aspect of the economy is broken, nothing will work. But you don't need to change everything. You just need to change that one part. Many of today's economic theories developed out of Keynes's general theory, including behavioral economics, liquidity, and labor markets. Keynes was groping for those ideas in writing the general theory. Keynes also wrote about how radically society needs to be transformed to produce outcomes that will best enable humans to flourish. One of Keynes's most famous essays 
was entitled Economic Possibilities for Our Grandchildren. And it asked about what the world was likely to be a century hence from when it was written. And it talked about the possibility of 15-hour work weeks and the question of how we would all occupy ourselves. And in many ways, it anticipated the discussions that we've seen and that we're seeing about the rise of robots, about the possibility of AI replacing large numbers of job categories, about how people spared the need to devote the majority of their waking hours to toil in order to support themselves and their families will find fulfillment. These are all ideas that Keynes explored. That speaks to his incredible prophetic powers. He seemed to have this ability to know how the world was changing and his role in it. Um, he wrote this letter to George Bernard Shaw in 1935. He said, quote, I believe myself to be writing a book on economic theory, which will largely revolutionize, not, I suppose, at once, but in the course of the next 10 years, the way the world thinks about its economic problems. I can't expect you or anyone else to believe this at the present stage, but for myself, I don't merely hope what I say. In my own mind, I'm quite sure. So he knew that his book would change the field and obviously through that change the world. What was its immediate impact in the 30s insofar as did his ideas make their way to governmental policy in various countries? I, I, I mean, popularly, I understand that the New Deal is partly an enactment of some of these ideas of sparking the, the economy through government programs. You know, the letter you you quote is a very famous letter, and it shows something else, which is that Keynes was not a modest man. He was not a man who failed to appreciate how extraordinary his talents were, and he was not a man who believed in hiding his lamp under a bushel. He famously uh, wrote, words should be a little wild, for they represent the assault of thought on the unthinking. And if you read even his expositions on questions of economic theory, the prose is always vivid. It is always enhanced by points being made with powerful imagery, with extensive use of metaphor and simile of a kind one doesn't usually associate with economic writing. Probably not the kind of thing you would read in an economics it's journal not, today. Certainly, certainly, it's a very different impression to look at what Keynes wrote and to look at the typical issue of today's American economic review. So I think that it would be an exaggeration given the timing Roosevelt having been elected in 1932 and the general theory having been published in 1936, to say that the New Deal was an enactment of Keynes's theory. Though the ideas were things Keynes had hinted towards and written about and were very much in the air, in a sense, um, an important part of the message of the general theory that if there's a sense that firms don't have any orders, 
nobody's walking into shops, that if the government just spends more, that will be good. That's a kind of natural common sense proposition that was actually more attractive to people in actual responsibility who knew little of economics than it was to those who'd had those intuitions trained out of them in economics classes. So Keynes's book changed economics at least as much as it changed economic policy. But I think the spirit of his writing and argument over time became profoundly important. So let's move now to the long durée impact of Keynes. In the years after World War II, what influence has his work held? And maybe you could even talk about its impact on Obama's rescuing of the, the Great Recession. Any serious student of global economic history would have to conclude that the two and a half decades after the Second World War were probably the most successful decades in economic history for the countries that were leading the world. Like all good things, the Keynesian system became a bit victim of its own success. As employment levels rose, as the power of governments to stabilize economies with fiscal and monetary policies increased, as the free exchange of goods and the free movement of capital grew, the internal contradictions of that system increase. And ultimately, the 1970s saw a very great increase in inflation. And that very great increase in inflation led to some rejection of Keynesian ideas in favor of more classical ideas. Uh, there was a renaissance of individualism and individual responsibility as the center of how a society can function rather than a sense of uh, community. And that was probably in some ways an appropriate corrective, if not to Keynes's ideas, to the way in which they had been implemented. Eventually, though, the pendulum swung back. Inflation was successfully controlled, more was deregulated, but this resulted in a variety of financial excesses and eventually led to the financial crisis of 2008. But this crisis was more quickly contained in part because nations came together to adopt Keynesian policies more quickly than they had in the 20s and 30s. Previously, there was a whole world, but when people talked about the global economy, they mostly meant Europe and North America. In 2009, they really did mean the whole world. China's massive fiscal stimulus program, a classic Keynesian response to economic distress, made a big difference in China and made a big difference more broadly for uh, the global uh, economy. 
and the grouping of nations that came together to address these problems had come to be a truly global grouping. So we're now back in a period where Keynesian ideas seem central and important in their relevance because there's a sense of crisis in the system and a debate about the radicalism of reform. Self-professed socialists are among the leading candidates uh, for president of the United States. Substantial fractions of American young people profess to prefer uh, socialism to capitalism. There's a rejectionist spirit. It's there in Britain in the Brexit debates. In a more technical economic sense, a hallmark of Keynes's theory was the liquidity trap. The idea that sometimes the interest rate will get to zero, and when it gets to zero, you can't use interest rate policy the way you had before, because if you lower interest rates too much below zero, people will simply hold cash under their mattress. Well, interest rates are zero or negative in Europe. Interest rates are zero or negative in uh, Japan. They're meaningfully above zero in the United States, uh, but below 2% out for 10 years. And there's not really much question that whenever the next recession comes, there'll be pressure to reduce interest rates, and then we'll have zero interest rates. So in a technical sense, uh, the whole world is either in Keynes's liquidity trap or is in the shadow of Keynes's liquidity trap. And that makes his ideas theoretically about how a system at zero interest rates function, his ideas practically about fiscal policy, the use of government spending and taxes relevant in a way they didn't used to be. Let's move now to the final piece about his ideas about the future of work and the idea of leisure and how he envisioned where the economy should go. What were his predictions and in what ways do you see us wrestling with some of his original thoughts about where the economy will go? Keynes thought that the world had for thousands of years lived in conditions that were defined by scarcity and that people had to devote a large fraction of their waking hours to productive activity, the compensation for which would give them the wherewithal to live. And he saw progress in technology as changing that fundamentally to the point where society could fend for itself adequately without people devoting the largest fraction of their time to toil. He predicted a century hence, so that's a decade from now, that we would be working 15-hour weeks. And he saw that as a kind of golden age in which people would be creating works of art, enjoying the life of the mind, cultivating their relationships with others, not being engaged in strife and struggle. 
in some ways, he was very prescient. If you read what he writes, it has very much the character of uh, much of what is said in Silicon Valley these days about all the technology is enabling and making possible. He didn't, I think, reckon importantly with what would happen in countries that, unlike the Britain of his day, were not at the cutting edge of prosperity. And so the kinds of challenges that are posed, for example, for Africa in this era were largely outside of his thinking. He didn't devote himself to questions of internal distribution and would the rewards of this new world where people could only work 15 hours a day and vast incomes and wealth could be achieved, would that naturally be split in some fair way? Or would a small number of the most energetic, creative, and ruthless, the Gateses, the Bezoses, the Jobs, end up with a disproportionate claim on all of that output? And how would a world where many people were dependent on the charity of a few be governed? And what kind of social cohesion did it maintain? These were not issues that were a focus of his. So besides the substance of Keynes's writings, you mentioned that you found him as a person pretty inspiring. Can you tell us why you think he's a figure we should look to? He was someone who seems like he woke up every morning trying to make a difference, whether it was influencing the debates over the great issues of the day, whether it was promoting arts and culture, whether it was cultivating his own aesthetic and intellectual appreciation, whether it was editing the leading economics journal of his day, he was always trying to do things that mattered. And he managed to live a life of mattering almost every day. He had a philosophy about something that's always been very important to me, the idea of engaged intellectualism. On the one hand, he wanted to understand, he wanted to contribute ideas. He famously wrote that it was ideas more than anything else that made a difference, that what statesmen said and did was the distilled frenzy of a defunct academic scribbler. On the other hand, he understood that ideas could be for little without those who would express them powerfully and bring them into the world in convincing ways. And so it was that commitment to engaged intellectualism that was, I believe, a uh, great strength of Keynes. And is there anything from his biography that you can point to as 
what contributed to this kind of unusual orientation in the world? I think it was the fact of a prodigious intellect living through such tumultuous times. If he'd lived at a different time, he might have been happy to be the most brilliant thinker at Cambridge. But being interested in economics, seeing through the First World War, seeing through the tragedy of Versailles, seeing the gathering forces and ultimately the Depression and then the Second World War, I think it forced him into the big world. Writ Large is produced by Galen Beebe, Jack Pombriant, and me, Zachary Davis. We get help from Liza French. Our theme song is by Ian Koss, and our branding is by Dan Petchy. We're a member of LitHub Radio. Writ Large is a Lyceum original production. Join our discussion room in the Lyceum app to share your thoughts and hear what other listeners are saying. You can also find us on our website, writlarge.fm. There, you'll find transcripts, links to the books we discussed, and more information about today's guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.